0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Kadiatu Mason was born in West Africa. In the 70s, she came to Britain with her mum and his siblings. She was a brilliant student and she became an academic at a young age. When she married her husband, Stuart, he said he wanted three kids and she said she wanted four. And in the end, they compromised by putting those two numbers together and they had seven kids altogether. And then something remarkable happened. Their first child, Isata, turned out to be a gifted concert pianist. Isata wrote her first piano concerto at the age of 11. Then their son, Brahma, turned out to be a gifted violinist. Another son, Sheku, won the BBC Young Performer of the Year Award for his mastery of the cello and he was invited to perform at the royal wedding of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. The younger kids, Konya, Aminata, Geneva and Mariatu, are brilliant musicians too, playing the violin, the piano and the cello at the highest levels. The eldest of Katiatu's children are now in their mid-twenties. The youngest is barely a teenager. And when you see all seven of them perform together in the family home, it's incredibly lovely. In case you're wondering, Kati and her husband, Stuart, are very driven parents, driven by their kids, that is, who leapt onto their instruments at an early age. And it's taken everything Caddy has to try and keep up with them, to get them from place to place intact and happy and with their instruments safely in their hands. Caddy and Stuart's few moments of peace come to them when they can sit in a concert hall and watch their gifted and anxious and beautiful children fill the space with sound and meaning, as she says. Caddy Ato can has written a wonderful memoir. It's called House of Music. Hi, Caddy. Hello. (laughs) There's a lot of love in this book and it starts with your your parents' love story. Your dad was from Sierra Leone, your mum was from Wales. Tell me how they met.
0: So they met because my father came over to Birmingham to do a woodwork teaching course and my mother was doing a teaching course in Hereford just outside Birmingham. She was at an all-woman teaching college, he was at an all-male teaching college and they met for a dance and that's how it started.
1: How long did it take before he asked your mum to marry him.
0: It was the very first night he met her. He knew he wanted to marry her.
1: <laughs> How did your mum's family react to the news that she was getting married and going to sail off to Africa with this, this wonderful man?
0: Well, with my mum's parents, who were Welsh, they were worried that she was going to go off to tropical West Africa and die of some disease, <laughs> <laughs> and it was too far away, and so they weren't happy because of that.
1: How about your dad's family? How did they take the news?
0: They weren't very happy either because he'd gone off to England and met some white woman who they didn't know and he was going to marry her. So both sides of the family, I think, were very worried about
1: it. So this is terribly romantic, isn't it?
0: Yes, they definitely got married. I suppose against everybody else's advice, definitely.
1: Did your mum tell you about how it was for her to leave England or Wales behind and arrive at the kind of green shores of West Africa.
0: She's a very interesting woman, very brave, very courageous. And at the age of 22 to sail, I think it was nine days on a ship all the way to West Africa to a place she'd never been before. She had quite a sheltered life before that. I think was extraordinary. But she just sees it as a very exciting thing. She was going to meet the man she loved. And for her, there was no doubt.
1: How did she describe the wedding that they had?
0: (laughs) Yes. So she said that, She suddenly had to meet, of course, all my father's family all in one go. When she met my father off the ship, he'd had a special wedding haircut, so he looked very different, <laughs> and she didn't approve of that. But she says suddenly she was surrounded by huge numbers of families. She was in a climate she didn't know. She was in a place she'd never seen before. She said it was just overwhelming.
1: Were there language issues at all?
0: Yes, because the first time she met her mother-in-law, her mother-in-law only spoke Mende and Creole, so they couldn't communicate. So I think they communicated by gestures. <laughs>
1: So they set up this home for themselves in Sierra Leone and they soon had a bunch of kids, including you. How important was music to your mum and your dad? What kind of background did they have in music?
0: Well, of course, it was a very different kind of music. So mm. my mother grew up with Welsh chapel music. So it was it was organ music, piano music. The piano was very important in Welsh families in those days. So my mother could play the piano. My father, of course, he was brought up with Mende, West African music, lots of drumming. But for some reason, even though he'd never been exposed to it, he wanted to play the piano. He longed to play the piano. And his great dream was to conduct an orchestra, which my mother found incredibly funny.
1: <laughs> really? And it, you, he was cool. Called- one day sort of daydreaming about that, wasn't it? Yeah. Yes.
0: She said, What are you daydreaming about? He said, I'm conducting an orchestra <laughs> and she just laughed.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's funny, but it's kind of there's something in that, I think, isn't there? There's something yes. going on there, isn't there? That's that's. I think you can hear the germ of something in that. Uh, yes, in that exactly.
0: Story. There was the longing for music and he played the guitar and sang and I think he would have loved to have been a musician, actually.
1: I, mean, I don't know, this is, is maybe it's just a cliche, but you know, Wales is famous for communal singing. Was there a tradition of that that might have been shared between both their cultures, I wonder?
0: Yes, because in Mende culture, singing is very natural every day. Everyone can sing, everyone can harmonise and it's just expected. And also in Welsh culture, which is very much built around the chapel and church. Um, Singing is what everybody does. So definitely there was that link between them.
1: When you were searching your memories for that first family home in Sierra Leone, what pictures do you have of that?
0: I have pictures of a very happy life, um, lots of family, I think the difference between Sierra Leone and Britain for me was that you were always in a big group of people, always with family, never alone. And I think that's the thing that sticks with me the most.
1: How about the house itself? What did that look like in your memory?
0: It was uh, stone floors. It was grass roof. I think the warmth, actually. There was no sense of you didn't have to wrap up to go outside. Um the air felt kind on your skin. I remember that.
1: Yeah, the air felt kind on your skin. Yeah. People coming and going all the time? From all the, the
0: time. There was always people around.
1: And food. What was the food like?
0: The food had huge amounts of taste. You ate it with your fingers as well in your hands. So it was a lot more tactile. And coming to Britain, of course, very, very different. Everything felt so much further away somehow and less part of your body and less natural.
1: You write in your book of three really powerful sense memories that you have of your dad. Tell me about them. The first you mentioned was something to do with him dropping you off at a nursery. Tell me me what that is in your mind.
0: That sticks very much in my mind, probably because of what happened afterwards as well. But I remember being dropped off at nursery. He was outside. It was a nursery run by Catholic nuns. So I was fighting to get out of these nuns' skirts. And my father was outside and he had his expression was a mixture of being sad to drop me off, but smiling to reassure me all at the same time. And I remember thinking, I can't get to him, he's leaving me alone. And I never forgot that.
1: were Were you shouting out to him?
0: I was screaming and shouting to him, shouting his name.
1: The other one is a night when you were sitting with him outside when there were cicadas. What's that memory?
0: So that memory, he used to like having his back scratched but because I was a small child I didn't have the fingernails so he used to give me a comb and I used to scratch his bare back outside where all the cicadas were singing and it was a very, in Sierra Leone, when it was dark, it was dark. So it was a black velvet night, lots of stars and I was scratching his back outside.
1: <laughs> and were those cicadas a source of food as well?
0: The termites were. So what happened was the termites, when they rose and came in a crowd to the house... We used to catch them in nets and eat them. We used to grill them or just eat them from the air.
1: <laughs> oh, and what are they that, are they like ants? I mean, do they have that kind of acrid uh, taste that, or smell that ants have as well? Yes,
0: a very strong protein sweet taste, which I still remember. And when I came to Britain, I related it to marmite, which is a really strong taste as well. And for me, they were very related in my mind. So I've always loved marmite since then.
1: Now, Katie, you're really specific about marmite, <laughs> oh, yeah. aren't you? Like, like Vegemite <laughs> in Australia? <laughs> no, no, not so great. Marmite—it's got to be Marmite. So, what are you going to hunting the British section of, of supermarkets to find your Marmite? Here?
0: Yes, and I found Marmite, so I'm very happy.
1: <laughs> what do you remember of, of the last time you saw your dad alive?
0: The last time I saw my father alive, he was in hospital in Freetown, which is the capital, wrapped in white sheets and just smiling. He was always grinning. And I remember just thinking, oh, it's wonderful, and jumping on the bed and seeing him. And that's the last time I saw him alive. And the next time he wasn't
1: alive. Why was he in hospital?
0: He had a heart attack and heart disease. But of course, as it was diagnosed in Sierra Leone, we never really knew what the diagnosis was. Um, It could have been a West African. African hypertension which was quite common but he just failed and he was going to be going to England to have treatment but he died three days before the plane left.
1: How were you told?
0: I was told in a very direct probably very African way. I was with my brother in a room my mother came in surrounded by lots of my aunties and just said said very simply daddy's dead and I think that's Probably a phrase that defined my life after that.
1: In African culture, well, in West African culture in Sierra Leone, are you shown the body? Do you often get to see the body? Yes,
0: everything's very open for children as well as adults. So everything's told very clearly. You definitely see the body the funeral he wasn't even in a coffin he was just laid out and you sing around so everything was very very open and i think as a small child you always you never quite believe it you don't really understand what death is so i spent my childhood believing my father was going to come back but then having this opposite memory of knowing that he wasn't and that's a very interesting thing
1: the body looks so different to the life person yes do you remember that sometimes you can't even is that really them is that can that really be them Did it, that for that me
0: actually as a child he was sleeping but not moving and i couldn't quite understand it i knew that he had died but he was definitely there dressed in a suit which he didn't always wear of course and it was very difficult to understand i think i probably took all my childhood years to understand what that moment meant
1: well, what was his funeral like
0: his funeral was outside under the elders' shelter in the middle of my father's village, very traditional village in Grima, um, surrounded by uncles and aunties and lots and lots of singing, the hot sun, and it was a very African funeral.
1: Is there a lot of weeping or is there, or is there a stress on being composed in that kind of environment?
0: Lots of noise, lots of weeping, lots of singing, lots of expression. And again, that's very opposite to England, where everything's hidden, everything's secret, everything's whispered in corners. So I think coming from those two very different contexts was a very difficult thing to reconcile.
1: Had the impact at all sunk in at the funeral for you? I mean, you were so young, what, were you five or something? I mean, could you, could you possibly understand what this meant for you at that age?
0: No, I couldn't understand. I heard all the words and I think I knew logically what had happened, but no, I didn't understand. And I think it took me until I was an adult to understand that my father was not going to come back, was not going to walk back through the door and what death actually meant. I don't think children understand
1: what that means. Do you remember how your mum was at the funeral?
0: Yes, my mother... The way I remember it is her face closed and remained closed for quite a few years after that. It was as though there was no expression, as though she had gone somewhere else far away. So I think at that time I lost both my mother and my father, mm. and it took a long time for her to come back.
1: So the next thing you knew, your mum and you and your siblings were on a plane to, yes. to Britain. Yes. And then the plane lands... And the door opens and you walk out of, what, at Heathrow or somewhere like that? And, Heathrow and to heard?
0: a very different planet. Um, suddenly the sky was further away and much smaller. We were in a thick late November fog. It was freezing cold and I had no idea what was going on. And suddenly there was no colour, there was no taste, there was no... Everything was completely and utterly different.
1: And deeply unfriendly too at the same time. It sounds a bit like the opposite of the Wizard of Oz moment, you know, where you know, the, the cottage lands in the strange <laughs> land and you you go from colour to black and white. Is that yes, what it was? Yes, exact, that's right. exactly
0: how it felt. And suddenly it was as though we were all closed in. Uh, we weren't allowed to say what we felt. Suddenly, Sierra Leone was something we didn't talk about. We didn't talk about my father anymore, except in embarrassed undertones and, of course, the language had changed and the people had changed and the food had definitely changed.
1: Britain was so dingy in those days too, <laughs> yes. a lot, lot more so than it is now. But everything damp and nothing worked. And you know, and no
0: central heating. No <laughs> central heating,
1: <laughs> a penny in the, in the coin slot and all of that. Yes. <laughs> so, so you went from, you went from a, a very colourful to a much colder place in that sense, yes. in every sense of, of the word. Did it seem a bit unreal to you?
0: Yes. And I think I struggled for quite a few years to work out what was reality and what wasn't. So it's as though I'd walked into a very strange and very hostile dream and that reality was somewhere else. And then I spent all those years trying to reconcile the two and think, okay, no, this is now reality. It's not going to stop. And I think the hostility and the racism made that much harder. I definitely felt I didn't belong and I should be somewhere else.
1: I have to ask, Wanda, what form that took for you, that racism for you as a a little girl?
0: The first time I encountered racism was walking in the street and being shouted at. It was very vocal in those days. People would shout it across the street. Why don't you go home? You don't belong here. And of course, lots of racist words. And it came from adults as well. Um, it was very open in those days, and we were definitely imagine
1: saying that to a five year old girl. <laughs> yes. Can you? I'm a I mean, I, well, you can You'd sort of, but I, it seems extraordinary to say that to a little girl.
0: Yes, it was the way it was in those days.
1: Did they seem a little weird to begin? I mean, it's an yeah. odd thing to do in a way, if you think about it, to to do that, to sort of cross the street and say something like that to a, a little kid.
0: But I think as a child, you internalise it. So I thought, well, they must be telling the truth. There must be something wrong with me, and I think then you grow up feeling that you are the wrong thing, not them. And I remember going to school and my first day of school, I stood in the middle of the classroom, everybody stared at me and I was the freak that had entered everybody else's normality. And I think that's what happens to a lot of black children who arrive as immigrants, is that you are made to feel that you are the freaks.
1: Did you have any concept of being a black person until you went to Britain?
0: None at all. I was just... A person. And I think you are given an identity when you arrive, definitely in those days. And I'm sure it hasn't changed much now. And so I became an immigrant. I became a black person. I became a monster, really. And I think none of us, there were four of us. We didn't really talk to each other about it, but we witnessed it together. And I think the biggest feeling I remember is shame. And I think that's what changed.
1: Shame for what?
0: Shame for being not not looking right, um, for being too brown, for being... My hair was wrong. And I thought, they're probably right. I've come from somewhere else and I shouldn't be here and I don't belong. And that's very difficult as a child, trying to do well, trying to integrate. All we wanted to do was to be the same as everyone else, but we absolutely were
1: not. Did it affect the way you looked at yourself in the mirror?
0: Yes, and I think that was the first trauma for me, I would go to school and imagine I was like everyone else. Then I'd come home, look in the mirror and shriek because the person in front of me was the monster that everyone else was seeing. And I would try and flatten down my afro. I would put water on it. I would put tea towels on my head, pretend I had long flowing hair. I would put pegs on my nose to make my nose smaller. (laughs) I'd put lemon juice on my skin to lighten it, all those things. And as I grew up and puberty happened, I'd try and wear the same clothes as my friends, but I couldn't understand why my bottom stuck out more than my friends. So (laughs) you learn a huge amount of shame for the Mm. way your body is, the way your face is. And I think I carried that right through to adulthood.
1: Meanwhile, was there some kind of negative space around your dad, where your dad had once been?
0: Yes. So I learned instead of feeling great sorrow, And love and longing for my father, I felt relief that he wasn't there and shame that he existed. So in a way, I made that into an invisible private space in my mind.
1: Were the adults around you conscious that this was all going through your mind. This, I don't think adults really always perceive the complexity of thought that goes on into a child's mind. I mean, you'd never think, you'd never imagine that a child would blame herself. It's odd.
0: No, I don't think they understood at all. I think adults think that children's minds are much more simple than they are, mm. and actually, children absorb a lot and they think very deeply and I think it's very difficult because my mother of course was white Welsh and my grandparents were Welsh and we were living in a white society. I think it's very difficult for uh, white people to understand what goes on and what the psychology of racism is for a small child.
1: The house you went to live in was the house of your mum's parents, Bosch parents, which was first in England and then in Wales So, yes. what was that house like for you, the, the atmosphere? Was there love in that house for you?
0: A huge amount of love. And my grandparents immediately welcomed us and took us in and gave us huge amounts of love. And I think my grandfather became a kind of surrogate father to us. So yes, we, we adored our grandparents.
1: You were raised Catholic, but he was a Protestant minister. What was it like for you to hear him him preach in church?
0: Yes, we used to go listen to his sermons in the Baptist Chapel every Sunday, and he was an amazing preacher, a wonderful teacher as well. And we just, I just love hearing him talk. Great storyteller.
1: You're saying that now, but at the time as a kid... Does a kid enjoy hearing the granddad uh, <laughs> preach from the pulpit? Did you actually seriously enjoy it, enjoy his sermons?
0: I think I just loved hearing him talk. And I remember we used to have visiting preachers, and I remember thinking, but my grandfather talks better than they do. <laughs> so, yes.
1: You write really beautifully about your dad and, and about that kind of physical intimacy you have with your, mm. your parents. Did you have that some kind of lovely physical intimacy with your grandfather? And what were the little things about him that you, that you really loved
0: I think I loved the smell of tobacco. In those days, he used, to, um, he used to smoke a pipe, which I thought was wonderful. And he used to wear wool, which, of course, in Sierra Leone I'd never encountered before. And so I used to snuggle into his chest and feel this wool, this new material. And I used to love when he, he was a great gardener. So he was always in the garden, always digging with soil. And I used to love the smell of soil on him. So there were lots of things that I loved. And his great, huge voice as well.
1: Did he recognise you were a kind of an unusually sensitive kid, like a kid that was picking up stuff that maybe other kids weren't picking up around her? I mean, like, these are really interesting perceptions you have here and you're seeing and feeling yeah. the world very vividly by the sound of things.
0: You know, it's very difficult. I think what adults did in those days, whatever they thought, they didn't communicate. So they thought <laughs> the best way to deal with a child was to not say the real things that are going on, is just to, is to hide things. So, yeah, so we had lots of jokes mm. and talks, but we never talked mm. deeply about, we never spoke about my father.
1: How about your mum? I mean, you mentioned she was closed for, mm. how long did that last for? And did she, did she ever see any other men after? after oh, absolutely
0: that? no way. She said, when I was an adult, she told me that when my father died, all that part of her life died as well. She never wanted anyone else. And so I always thought that all mothers slept in single beds. Um and that was what a proper mother was like. So no, there was never anybody. How long
1: did it take for her to emerge from her grief though, do you think? And be and be open again mm. to you and your and your siblings?
0: We spent four years in England and then we moved to Wales and I think it was in Wales that she became I suppose somebody, somebody that I could talk to. We didn't really talk about the past in Sierra Leone and my father in a very open way, but she became someone who was warm
1: again, I would say. Did you have much Welsh, Welsh language growing up in Wales?
0: No, because my grandparents both had Welsh-speaking parents. But in those days, Welsh was something that was discouraged. So they weren't allowed to speak Welsh. They weren't allowed to speak their native language. And if they went to school, it was discouraged. And they had to wear a sign around their neck if they spoke Welsh. So it was something that was very what? much squashed. <laughs> but then my mother, uh, as an adult, and my grandparents actually started learning Welsh. And now my mother's fluent again.
1: Were things like under milkwood in the house? Like, uh, were you, were you oh, getting yes. like uh, that kind of Welsh culture and, well, and that kind of specific Welsh accent in any case?
0: Oh, absolutely yes. There was lots of uh, Welsh culture. We would listen to Richard Burton's version of Under Milkwood <laughs> all the time on the record player. My grandparents, of course, had very strong Welsh accents, and when we moved to Wales, it was we used to sing the Welsh national anthem in Welsh. We sang Welsh songs in Welsh, so the Welsh language was there. But it was definitely something that was coming back to Wales. And now Wales is a very different place. The Welsh language is encouraged again and it's everywhere.
1: The thing you have in common with all your kids is that you you tend to glom onto musical instruments like iron filings, onto a magnet. When were you first (laughs) exposed to a piano?
0: Cutting. I will never forget the day so um the school that my mother was a primary school teacher and they were throwing out a very old upright piano onto a rubbish heap so my mother brought it home to us and that was and we, we we were just very happy but of course that wasn't the first piano I saw the first piano was next to the Baptist church and there was a family there with six children and they had an upright piano I was very young then and we all dived on that piano and I did not want to get off the piano
1: and what did you love about it was the mechanical challenge or was it
0: the sound the sound the sound and the fact that it was a very tactile instrument you'd put your fingers on there and sound would come out and I thought it was complete magic
1: yeah the thing that's often not recognized is the piano is strictly speaking a percussion instrument you make a sound by striking something don't you and and to play the piano did you recognize in your even in your young self this was a way of channeling feeling absolutely bring it out into the world
0: yes and i think that's why i stuck at the piano because you could say something without saying it all the things that you were ashamed about or found too traumatic to express you could express through music
1: in an abstract way
0: yes without being embarrassing without actually saying it you could say it more deeply
1: and people might say, "Well that's lovely too,
0: exactly, yeah. and accept it in a way they wouldn't accept it if you said it.
1: You mentioned there that you were subject to constant racist abuse in the street mm-hmm. and in the classroom and so on and so forth. Did that make you a little and your brother a little agrophobic?
0: Yes, and I think looking back, you don 't realize what it's doing to you, but we were afraid of going outside, going outside was a challenge because you were going to be attacked you were going to well my brother was physically attacked I, with me it was verbal attacks and you knew that was going to happen when you walked outside the door so I remember my brother developed a whole ritual of going outside where he would prepare himself he'd open the door he'd wait he'd put a hood all over his face and then charge outside I would go back and forth to the door and it would take me probably the fifth attempt before I walked out And then walking out was almost as though a loud noise was filling your head the whole time. And it was fear. And you knew you had to deal with that fear every day. Broadcast Podcast this is conversations with Richard Feidler.
1: You went to uni because you're a very bright student, and that 's where you met Stuart, your husband. My experience experiences, guys tend to fall quite hard and quite quickly, but, you know, you, there's, <laughs> there's a fair <laughs> bit of nagging that has to go on to actually get the woman concerned, kind of interested in, in the whole thing. Is that how it was for you? Did, did, were you immediately attracted to him?
0: I think when Stuart and I first met, neither of us were attracted to each other. I have to say, we did not get on. Um, obviously, we were attracted to each other, but we were in denial. So we used to argue. I thought that he was a very pompous Londoner. He thought that I was a boring country girl. <laughs> and But then we became friends. And I think despite ourselves, we realised we were absolute soulmates. And he asked me to marry him when I was 20, he was 22. And I said no. And then he never gave up so nine years later I
1: said yes. (laughs) What had changed in those nine years?
0: I think I realised that he was someone I was not going to get out of my system and I think I came to appreciate him more and more and I think the main thing was I realised I was not going to find anyone more intelligent than him and more sensitive and he was probably the most intelligent person I've ever met.
1: When you realised you actually we're in love with him, did it come as a shock? Was it, it this is, it sounds very Jane Austen like We go, oh, oh my god, I suddenly realized I was in love. Was it like that a bit?
0: It was a bit, yes. I think I suddenly thought, Oh, he stood in my mind, and yes, I think I do want to marry him, but it was definitely despite myself because I thought I was going to go off to pastures new and discover someone else, not someone yeah. I'd known for all that time.
1: <laughs> do you think it took you that long to know your own heart, to be old enough to know your own heart?
0: I needed to grow up, I needed to understand myself, I needed to come to terms with who I was and who I'd had been all those years, and I just wasn't ready and settled.
1: He was a real maths guy. You're an English academic. Did that work in some sort of strange... Opposites attract sort of way, or, was it, or are there more sympathies there than first I apparent? thought
0: it was yin and yang, and I thought maths and English are absolute opposites. And then we found we had far more in common than we thought we had. And we actually, in some ways, think the same, but he approaches it from a different way. So for him, everything is maths, and for me, everything is poetry. But actually, they can become the same thing.
1: Well, there's a beauty in mathematics and there's, there's a beauty- structure to poetry, exactly. isn't Exactly,
0: yeah. exactly, yes.
1: You say that both you and Stuarts learned how to sit still and be quiet for long periods of time when you were young. Maybe that comes from listening to your, your grandpa's sermons in church. What do you think you've gotten from that?
0: I think we've got the ability to concentrate for long periods of time and expect to concentrate and expect to listen. Probably that's what we've brought to our children, that it's not all about being frenetic and going from one thing to another. It's about deep listening and it's about deep communication.
1: How much music did he have in his life?
0: He was brought up in a very musical way. He was introduced to the piano at the age of four and... Um, was expected to practice. His, his mother was a very strict Caribbean woman from Antigua and she used to go to work and put a clock on top of the piano and say, you have to practice for half an hour and you do not stop until that clock has moved half an hour and he used to do it. And uh, he became a very, very good pianist actually.
1: In those days, maybe not any Afro-Caribbean faces in, in that kind of music, that world of music, of classical music. Did he imagine he could be part of that world?
0: He knew that he could learn to play music and um, his sister as well played the piano and viola. He played piano and cello. But no, he never expected to become a classical musician because that was a world that was closed off to people like him. I don't remember any black classical musicians at that time.
1: He grew up with free musical tuition at his school. I got that too. I went to a state school, but I got free musical tuition at my my school and that's one of the best things I ever had in my whole life. What do you think about all that, that, making that available to... To kids for free.
0: I think that was vital to both me and my husband growing up. I learnt the clarinet at school for free. My husband learnt cello and piano. I was encouraged all the time with music, even though I went to a very basic, what you could say, public school in Australia. And I think the loss of that is a much bigger loss than people realise. Because I think people with mine and my husband's background are now being denied access to classical music and to learning musical instruments. And people talk about classical music being something that's only for a certain group of people. But I think that becomes self-fulfilling if you only allow it to be available to a certain group of people. And it's a huge tragedy.
1: It's a tragedy. It's also a really boring way to look at the world too, I think, isn't it? So you got married and you had some kids. You... uh Stuart was a consultant for a major British Airlines and then you had your, your first daughter, Izata. How undone were you by the arrival of a little baby girl in your hectic <laughs> high powered life catty? <laughs>
0: I think having children changes you completely. So I was a career woman, I was an English academic, that was my life. Suddenly there was this new baby who turned our lives completely upside down and took over every space in my head, in my life, in my waking hours. So yes, completely turned me upside down.
1: (laughs) How did music affect her as a baby?
0: She was someone who even before she could walk or talk, I could see that music was everything to her.
1: At a very young age, she's, she went from being, by the sound of things, quite a happy baby to quite a really troubled one. What was she showing of that? What, how, how troubled was she?
0: I think it started when we moved house when she was 18 months old. And I, like the adults did with me, did not think that children think that deeply. I mean, she was a toddler. I thought that everything would go over her head, but she was completely traumatised. And my husband went off to the Middle East before us. We were all moving, but he left before we did. And the loss of her father, which I didn't really understand in those terms, and the loss of her home completely traumatised her. And she was a child who was very bright and understood her environment and and i think also maybe was i suppose had very developed sensory perception so everything to her was a huge thing and we knew we had to deal with her very carefully and psychologically we had to tread
1: carefully. Yeah, very developed indeed. Mm. Tell me about Tom, who was always hanging around the house, please.
0: Yeah, so what happened when we moved house was she suddenly saw someone called Tom who no one else could see. We thought it was a ghost or we couldn't work out what it was. And she would be rigid with terror. She would sweat and she would be determined that Tom was there.
1: And Tom was um, malevolent?
0: Tom was definitely malevolent. And it was the most terrifying thing I think I've ever seen. I've never seen a child react like that. Oh,
1: God. <laughs> That's, that would be so damn scary. <laughs> There's evil Tom there in the doorway. It was yes. like that, was it?
0: It really was like that, and we were all
1: terrified. So, so you moved to Bahrain. That's where your husband had a job in yeah. Bahrain and the Arabian Peninsula and all that, and she began music lessons at the age of four. Once she had music, though, when she could actually mm. – Glide onto a piano. What did that do for her?
0: Oh, that was transforming. I mean, she learned very, very quickly. Um, she had perfect pitch. We realised very early on.
1: She could like turn away from the piano, hear a note, and go, "Oh, that's B or a C sharp or something." Yes,
0: like that. as soon as because she learned music theory first very, very quickly, oh. and so we'd play a note, she knew C sharp. She knew it doesn't matter what octave, what pitch, and that was extraordinary. And she could sing in perfect tune from the age of eighteen months onwards.
1: You moved back to Britain and moved into Nottingham. And I think you're still there today, aren't you? they are still there. Still, still there today. <laughs> more kids arrive, more and more kids come, and they're all interested in music. How hard was it to scrounge money for these instruments mm. for your kids?
0: Learning an instrument is very expensive. If, if it's not fully available in a state school, you have got to afford it. And, of course, with seven children, that's seven times. And the cost of instruments, the cost of lessons, the cost of travel to lessons, the cost of sheet music incredibly expensive. So we went hugely into debt. We denied ourselves a lot of things like heating, a car that worked properly that wasn't rusting. For a little bit of time, we didn't have a car. We, didn't, um, we went on very cheap holidays if we went on holidays. So, yes, there was a lot of denial, a lot of sacrifice, but it was worth
1: it. Zada auditioned for a place at the Royal Academy of Music. Well, she was 10 or 11 and she got in. They, yes. got, they offered her a position. Then she wrote her first piano concerto in C minor and the orchestra, St Bartholomew's Orchestra in London offered to perform it with her playing the piano for it at the age of 11. What was that like for you to sit and watch that performance unfold with your beautiful, brilliant, anxious, lovely daughter?
0: It was a series of extraordinary things. So the fact that she auditioned at the age of nine to go to the Royal Academy at 10, then she wrote the concerto at 10, had it performed at 11. We thought, what is going on here? And then we sat there and watched her perform it with the orchestra and it was utterly surreal, utterly.
1: It's a real challenge for you as as parents, isn't it? I mean, you've got this brilliant kid and did you realise then you would have to be jogging as hard as you can for the next, I don't know, twenty years or so, to keep yes. up with these this brilliant brood of kids you've got.
0: I think people think if you have gifted children, it is a gift. It's not. <laughs> it's. I mean, it's a burden as well and a huge responsibility. So I remember uh, my mother-in-law saying to me, "Okay, you have these children. They're musical. That's not easy." And we had to shoulder that. And definitely, yes, it was a slog. <laughs> yeah,
1: It's a gift, but it's not a cash gift, is it? No, exactly. <laughs> so there are cash prizes that go <laughs> with, with this gift, are, are there? So, I mean, you were always waking up to music somewhere in the house once you had child <laughs> after child. I mean, did you, were you waking up to them hearing scales throughout the house? Which yes. would be rather lovely, isn't it? Or are you getting up, I don't know, what's that like?
0: Yes, yeah, so you're woken up at five in the morning to scales and practice and then playing together. But I think people imagine you're in this house of beautiful music. Music. but of course practice isn't always beautiful it's loud it's noisy it's clashing there are people playing all at the same time and the, but there are moments when suddenly they're all playing together or they have a piece which is ready and then it's beautiful
1: Kelly <laughs> how important is structure <laughs> in a family with seven music musical kids
0: I think with seven children full stop yeah, whether yeah, they're yeah, musical yeah, or not yeah. if you cannot survive unless you've got routine so they'd come home from school they'd eat I'd make a big pot of food they would would do their homework they would do their practice and bedtime was very strict because Stuart and I knew if we didn't get a good night's sleep mm.
1: it was all over. What was the breakfast ritual like? For you it's your chaos. Yeah? Still chaos right?
0: It's still chaos right. everyone who comes in they're all making their own meals because they all have different breakfasts but all at the same time so there might be someone frying eggs there might be someone making toast there might be someone having porridge but they're all at the table at the same time all talking at the same time and very loudly.
1: I mean before you had kids and you had kids at 29 before you had your seven kids you were this kind of really high powered academic. <laughs> what was it like for you to really say a firm goodbye to that person of your 20s who could just yes. get up in the morning and think about pleasing yourself?
0: I think this is a common experience of motherhood. You are a person, you are you have an identity, um you go out into the world and then suddenly you have to pack all that away. And I think taking on the mantle of being really a housewife and mother was really difficult. I think I felt I was packing myself into a very small space and. It was embarrassing because we'd go out and people would say, what do you do? What do your husband do? And, of course, my husband did something real and I felt I was doing nothing real. And I think that embarrassment that mothers feel is a terrible thing.
1: Oh, God, there you are being embarrassed (laughs) again. Good God. I mean, that's terrible. I mean, I'm just a mum. Is that what you were saying?
0: (laughs) Yes, I think I I did feel like that.
1: (laughs) Your brilliant son, Sheku, how did he let you know that he was interested in the cello?
0: Well, he let me know by the fact that I was determined he was going to be a violinist. And I had learnt the violin only up to grade five, but enough to start him off. So I used to give him lessons on the violin. And I have never known a child so naughty and so impossible. It was terrible. After every lesson, I'd be in tears. He'd be rebellious. And then we went to a concert. He saw the cello section. He said, I am going to play that, and never wavered. We had to give him the cello. And the yeah. minute he had the cello, that was it.
1: I, I would rather hear a cello than a violin most <laughs> days. But were you thinking that's a much bigger bit of equipment to haul around from place to place than a little violin?
0: Yes. I mean, we were all right with the cello, but then when my fifth child wanted to play the <laughs> double bass,
1: <laughs> we had to
0: gracefully decline.
1: <laughs> I suppose you know, a lot of people listening will be wondering, you know, what about you know, kids wanting to play TV and video games and do all that sort of stuff? Tell me about this little, this little, little act of rebellion you discovered, when your eye was caught by a couple of pages in your younger daughter, Konya's diary. <laughs> yes, Eddie?
0: we were very proud parents. We thought we have got very strong rules and our children are very good. I thought they were angels. They're following our rules and we were in control. And then we discovered that the only way they were allowed to use the laptop, the computer, was with a password. And we controlled that password and they were only allowed to use it for their homework. And then we discovered that they had played a trick to find out the password where they had balanced a phone and um, where I couldn't see, asked me to type the password in, filmed it. And from then on, they had been getting <laughs> into the laptop without our knowledge.
1: you were strongly advised to send the brilliant Isata your oldest daughter to a music school to Mm -hmm. move to a music school to board there and do all that but later on, you You didn't think that was the right decision in the end.
0: No, I think parents do what they think is the right thing for their child. So we were told that the only way she was going to become a, a pianist, which is what she was desperately wanted to be, was to send her off to a music school, which meant boarding. So we did it when she was 14, up until the age of 16. And I was traumatised by that. I didn't want to send her. She really wanted to go. Everyone told me she should go. And I think I mourned for those two years. And after that, we brought her home. And we never sent any of the others and we think that actually family is much more important and as a family we could give her more than a music school could.
1: There was a point when Sheku the cellist became very very ill and you couldn't figure out what was wrong with him. Tell me about that time when he became <laughs> very very ill indeed.
0: So he was 12 years old. We noticed that he was losing weight, getting very pale and um, was needing the toilet all the time, was desperately thirsty, but I was in denial. I thought, oh, it's probably just some kind of infection, some disease, he's going to get over it. I didn't want to face it. But eventually we had to take him to the doctor. And the minute the doctor tested his his urine, um, he said, this child has type 1 diabetes. He's full of sugar and he had to be rushed to hospital with an oxygen mask because his sugar levels were so high he was about to go into a coma. And I think that was a huge trauma for us. And I think we grieved as parents. You grieve the loss of that healthy child. And you know that forever, there is no cure for type one. It's not to do with diet or lifestyle. It's a condition you're going to have for the rest of your life.
1: People can be pretty silly. But people saying to you, you've driven him to this. (laughs) Did you get it? Seriously, did you get that? We
0: got a lot of that because people confuse type 2 and type 1 diabetes. Yeah. yeah. So they were saying, why didn't you feed your child more healthy food? And so you get blamed as an adult. And we kept having to say it just happens. It's an autoimmune disease.
1: It just happens. I wonder, it seems like he, of course, pushed up against the need to stop, do a blood test, take his insulin and do all that. Is there something in stopping
0: sometimes? I think when he went through his teenage years, there was definitely a lot of rebellion. He wanted to be a normal boy. I mean, he carried on playing football. He was a normal boy, but he didn't want to have to do the blood tests and and the insulin injections and and all of that. And I think it's taken a huge amount of courage to face that. And he's had to be very, very self-aware. And um, now he knows that if he's going to do a cello performance or any kind of musical performance, he has to test his blood. He has to be very aware of what he's doing.
1: Whenever Izata and Konya perform they're pianists, they can get on a plane and know there's going to be a lovely Steinway or some beautiful piano waiting for them. It's not the same for Sheku. He's got to bring his own <laughs> cello. And it's a big thing now. I think, given that you have all these gifted kids with no cash prizes, people might assume there's a private plane waiting for him to take him in his cello. But it isn't. Oh, you've got him on British Rail trying to book oh, a seat no. with a, a seat for his his own cello. Is is that a constant thing for you to be mindful of, <laughs> trying to get him from help him from place to place with this great big exquisite bit of timber? Uh, that he's got to travel with?
0: Travelling with a cello is not easy. Travelling on public transport is not easy. So I think a lot of people don't understand just how expensive that instrument is, how delicate. You have to book a seat for it everywhere. Um, He had this terrible trip on Eurostar when um, he'd booked a seat but he hadn't checked the ticket in properly. He got on on the train and they said, oh, you have no seat for it. But the guard said, it's fine, we'll lock it in at this office and when we get to Paris we'll come and unlock the office and take the cello out. He was waiting at that office on the train no one came um he had to go and try and find the guard by the time he came back to the office the cello had gone now no one can express what that means to a cellist
1: and what what kind of cello are we talking about here? this like uh this isn't something out of the 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 practice cupboard of the local school is it
0: this is like a 400 year old cello that does not belong to him and that he has on loan so it was probably the worst moment of his life getting that cello back
1: (laughs) yeah it'd be a bad thing to have to explain i lost it on a train wouldn't it (laughs) With all your kids performing together so be- – and it, goodness, it's so moving to watch them perform together. They seem to enjoy it. It's really unfeigned pleasure they seem to have in each other's company as they as they perform together. All of this might seem, for an onlooker, to be like some brilliant plan you oh, and Stuart yes. had and executed to the nth degree. Uh, like we're going to get together, we're going to have seven kids, they're all going to be musical geniuses, they're all going to perform together, and it's going to be great we we'll travel all over the world together. Was there a plan? Was there any kind of plan?
0: There wasn't okay. even a plan to have seven children, to be honest. Mm. Um, I, I plan to have four, as you said, as do you mm. plan to have three. But um, I think what's happened, it seems to be something that's come from them and has taken us over. So we don't feel like we're driving this. It's driving us.
1: <laughs> is it getting any easier?
0: Easy is not the word. It's becoming different. It's becoming bigger. We do have seven huge personalities. They are utterly individuals, but they love playing together. And I think um, it's as though they're a huge sibling gang of big personalities. And we are just there as parents, you know, doing the best we can.
1: Does music, when they perform together, help keep the peace between them?
0: Peace is the wrong word. It helps. It's a constant communication. It keeps them together. It's a language they all share. It's something they want to do together and it's kept the family close. I don't think music is a peaceful thing. I think it's something mm. that is it's always... They, mm. Well, there is dissonance mm. as well. And when they play together, they, they argue things out. And it's something that's full of passion and you constantly have to have your emotions on your sleeve. And I don't think that's an easy thing to live with. So easy is the wrong word, I'd say.
1: I, mean, I suppose I mean more, less stressful for you. Then.
0: It's less stressful in the sense that I know they are together a lot and they are very close and they always know what each other are doing. So I never feel like I've lost one of them or one of them's going away that I can't follow. So in that sense, we feel very much together. So in, as a parent, that's easier, yes.
1: As you say, sometimes classical music, symphonic music, is seen as uh, some kind of niche mm. form of music these days. Have you had that experience sitting next to people who freely admit they don't like this kind of thing or this kind of music and find themselves undone by hearing your children perform? Like suddenly involuntary tears sort of welling up in
0: there. Have you seen that? probably the greatest joy we have I think because they are who they are they invite people who wouldn't necessarily go to a classical concert to come when I am with my children in a concert any of them in the audience I find is more diverse the age range is different There are more children more young people and that's a huge joy because a lot of classical concerts you don't get that And I think the fact that they are opening up the audience and inviting people in and saying, look, it's fine. This is something that you can all listen to, no matter who you are, is probably my greatest joy.
1: You know, I've left out in this conversation so many moments of terrible pressure and fear and terror that you've gone through and hard work and lack of sleep. I think you've been living on perhaps, I don't know, a third of the sleep that the rest <laughs> of the world gets on getting. Uh, I really loved your memoir and I so enjoyed this conversation with you. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you very much. It's been a huge pleasure.
1: You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website, abc.net.au slash conversations.
0: Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.